Is God in favor of genocide? No, the answer is no. Of course the answer is no. Hey listeners, a few things before we start the episode. First thing, if this episode's a wee bit more jumbled up than normal, it's because I recorded it far into the afternoon instead of right after my very invigorating morning cup of coffee. Also, unbeknownst to him, a friend of the show took me up on the evangelization episode offer, which, to remind you, is if you're going to have a conversation with somebody in the context of evangelization, are having one or had one, and you need a little bit of support, I am here to help. I don't think this fella knew that, but we were in conversation, and he was hoping for a little bit of help on a upcoming conversation, which we'll probably talk to him about that conversation later in an episode. But this episode is for him and anybody else who's interested in listening. Another thing is, and why we have this little blurb before, it turns out he clarified that the passages that he was going to be discussing weren't identical to the ones which I already quoted into the podcast, though I believe I touched on them. So I'll be delving into a big point that I definitely want to have on the table about a section from Deuteronomy. And last, I wanted to throw this uh, little blurb before this episode in to say that I forgot something in another episode, and that was the Jacob and Esau episode. What I was going to say somewhere in there, but apparently didn't, was that there's a, uh, there's a parallel between the Friday abstaining from meat and something that happened in the Old Testament. And here's what it is. In RCIA classes, when I get the question, hey, why do Catholics not eat meat on Fridays during Lent or often any Fridays at all? I refer them back to something which is much, much older. You see, in the story of Jacob, here's the scene. Before he goes and confronts evil, kind of in the person of Esau, he sends out all of these animals and then these servants, kind of like Jesus did, and that he has this sacrificial system whereby the animals go ahead and then all these prophets are coming also. And then Jacob finally arrives, right? I explained that in the episode, just like Jesus finally arrives. But before that happens, Jacob has this wrestling match with God and God reaches out and touches the joint of his his left hip. And from then on, scripture says that out of reverence for that event, the Jewish people did not eat meat of any animal that was on that part of the hip. It's a remembrance of a time that God reached out and touched man right before this great battle against evil. So how does that relate to our current covenant age? Well, what was the point of great wrestling against evil that culminates in the defeat of evil through Jesus Christ? Well, that really is Good Friday, right? Good Friday is the point where he has this great wrestling match, kind of like our father Jacob had. And where did God touch man in this? Everywhere, right? God is fully joined with humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. So where does God touch man? Not just at that one point of the hip, but everywhere. He becomes man. And on this specific wrestling match day, which is Friday. So if the Jewish people commemorated the time where God touches man, by not eating meat in that spot, then we continue the tradition by not eating meat on this special day entirely. 
Um, at least that's my explanation. So I wanted to throw that in there. All right, so the uh, point that I didn't address in the upcoming show that apparently is a big, hot topic of discussion is um, this section from Deuteronomy. When you go to war against the enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife, bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife." If you are not pleased with her, let her go whenever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. So here's a big point that I want to make. If you are one of the people who have listened through the Leviticus series, what I just read should seem glaringly similar to a certain passage in Leviticus 14. And well, here it is. On the seventh day, they, the lepers, must shave off all their hair. They must shave their head, their beard, their eyebrows, and the rest of their hair. They must wash their clothes and bathe themselves with water, and they will become clean. Why do I bring this up? Well, because it's a very similar command to what these women have to do. Why? What is it saying? What's the law trying to tell us? Well, leprosy is viewed as like a physical manifestation of a spiritual problem, and we go into depth on exactly how that plays out. Um, and these lepers lived in leper colonies. So there is a normative way to enter back into the covenant people, into the city of God. There's a normative way to do that if you're coming from an unclean community. And that is, you shave off all your hair, you either burn your clothes if they're it can't be cleaned, or you wash them. In any case, you put off those clothes that you were wearing in that community, and then you enter back in. Um, and that's what it's doing for these women. They are following something very similar to what lepers do. Now, I pointed out in the Leviticus episode that this actually points all the way towards the new covenant. Why? Because Jesus tells us that unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And what happens? Well, your hair is shaved, you put off all your clothes, and then you enter in humbly, like a baby. And Paul even comments on this section, and he seems to be pulling up Levitical imagery, as the Leviticus episode tells you much more about. But we're not going to reiterate that here. A few things I want to point out is that um, this inclusion into the covenant for the Levitical law happens on the eighth day, which is the day of inclusion for a newborn son. So you're literally being born into the community again. That's what the image is, is doing here. That's why she gets a shaved head. She disregards her clothes. Where, like the leper who has to shout unclean, she is in a place of dishonor. Like us, when entering into the new covenant, we have to begin by saying, you know what? We are unclean. We have to repent. And guess what? These enemy nations had to repent a lot. And in this episode, you'll find out why. We have things like demon worship and sacrificing your children in fire. So really bad stuff. All right, so that's what this is about. It's not just meant to shame and humiliate and be mean to people. It is the normative way by which people enter the covenant community of God 
from an unclean community. That is my, my big point I want to make. Um, and then, of course, I, I think I get into the compared to what question. Should we leave these women there? Their husbands are probably dead. They will die because they're near subsistence anyway. They could fall prey to the nation surrounding them. Uh, that's really, really bad. So instead, we're given a path to be included into the covenant. And they're protected from abuse. Part of the reason they shave their heads, trim their nails, and change their clothes is so they don't look attractive. So they're less likely to be abused. Also, you can see who these women are and go, oh, that's somebody not yet married to anybody. They better not be shacking up. So we need an outward sign of who these people are because it's not enough to just say, hey, soldiers, be good. No, no. Now we actually have... Um, a way of distinguishing who's following the commands and who's not, because it has become a visible command. Next, these women are not forced to marry. Obviously, if you know anything about Jewish law, you know that there are no such thing as legal forced marriages. That's not a thing. So if you just assume that, then that's just an anti-religious, anti-Christian, anti-Jewish bias. You should not assume that if you know anything about the law. Both parties have to sign the marriage covenant. Otherwise, it's not a marriage, of course. Also, it's just not like they're going and they're collecting these women and they become their slaves. It specifically says they're not to be sold as slaves and they're not to be treated as slaves. And then it even mentions how she can go free as she wishes and she's given time to, to mourn. Um, and by the way, on this guy's dime, right? This guy is supporting her the entire time while she mourns, the entire time while there's nobody else to support her. He cannot have any relations with her. She has to consent to marriage if she wants to marry. And she, he has now removed her from a place where the enemies which surround could go and take advantage of her. And by the way, yeah, you know what? We'll get into the rest of that. <laughs> so I really don't understand what people have a big problem with here. What is the issue? Are they assuming the women are forced to marry? Because that's just an ignorant assumption. Um, are they assuming that, that um, I don't know, Israel is attacking these nations in order to steal their women like the early Romans did with, with the Sibelian? Sim, Sim, I don't know. Somebody will know. Those women, that famous story. Because um, that's a wrong assumption. Find me one place where it ever shows that the Israelites decided to attack a nation to take their women. That was, and if you can, I promise you, that was not um, supported by God. You don't just pillage countries in order to take their women. That's not what's going on here. These are enemy nations for very good reason. And this is what happens to people who likely lost their only means of support. And yes, all right. Um, so there you go. Did want to get that on the table. Uh, all this stuff is about protecting these women. It is about including them into the covenant, giving them a chance to go from being part of an enemy nation, an unclean community, into a clean community. It is not principally about punishment, but clearly it's about purification, about penance. It's not about oppression of enemies, but inclusion into God's people. All right, Will, on with the episode. I hope you guys enjoy. Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about some difficult passages of scripture from the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, both of which have God commanding for lots of people to be killed. And that does seem kind of difficult. We have a good God. He's righteous. He's a good judge. And yet, he wants a lot of people to be wiped out by the Israelites. 
Now, particularly atheists will bring these passages up and say, hey, you have a, uh, you have a problem here. What's up with this? Is God condoning genocide? And as we'll see quickly, the answer is no. He's not condoning genocide at all. Now, there's a number of approaches that we could take to difficult passages like this, one of which is some people have taken these as more allegorical, that it's not really about God having every single one of them killed. This was just trying to show how angry God was at sin, and it's using that as a as a, yeah, a tool in the text, right? The, the I'm going to wipe out every single man, woman, and child. That's just a tool to show his anger against what was going on and that this is chiefly an allegorical spiritual meaning. Now, other people point out that there's lots of similar writings of this style which come out of groups like the Egyptians who commonly present themselves as these massive, bold winners who can overthrow every opponent and kill every single last man, woman, and child. And because the Israelites spent a very long time in Egypt, we shouldn't be that surprised that their writings look similar to theirs. And that's another perfectly productive way that you can look at these questions. Another way is to look at it in light of the interpretive tradition of both the law and the prophetic proclamations, which is that these seem to be maximum punishments. And then when they're actually metered out, they're metered out according to the circumstances. So that's why we don't just have the law that says, I don't know, if you are an angry and rebellious child, it's the death penalty, and then just put to death every single possible rebellious child. No, there were courts. There was a process. This was metered out and applied. And from what I know, I don't know of a single recorded instance where one of those children was actually executed. But this is the maximum possible punishment. That's how the law seems to work. And then we also have that working with the prophets. For example, Nineveh is said to be destroyed in 40 days. And then it's not destroyed in 40 days. So what happened? Was that not a true prophecy? No, it was the maximum possible punishment. When the people repented and turned from their evil ways, well, then God relented from that maximum possible punishment. So here, where God is telling them to go and wipe out this people, it is up into including wiping them out. But if their hearts change, like the people in Nineveh, or if there are other circumstances, like when we look at infractions of the law, then we should not be surprised at all if, in practice, these were metered out with mercy according to the circumstances. Um, but I'm not taking any of these approaches. I want to make you aware of them. Instead, I want to go for the worst apologetic possible scenario. Let's just go ahead and assume through the rest of this episode, that God means exactly that. When he says in the section uh, that we're going to read that these men and women or, or, or children, whatever, should be executed, let's assume that that's exactly what actually happened and no exceptions were actually being made. That's how we're going to progress. But let's talk about how maybe the atheist across the table might progress. He has two options when launching this argument. Option one is he can launch it from atheism to basically say, atheism good, Christianity bad. Or he can launch it from inside of the Christian tradition saying, hey, if I step into your worldview, I'm seeing that it's not coherent. And if it's not coherent, then it can't be true because truth always coheres with truth. 
So those are the two options. But if he wants to launch this argument that the God of the Bible is doing all these evil things from the atheistic perspective, well, immediately there's a problem. And here it is. Inside of atheism, a very popular, if not the most popular, view on morality is one of uh, utilitarianism. That if something has good effects for the largest group of people, well, then we ought to prefer it. And here's the issue. I think that what God commands in the passages we're going to read more in depth could certainly, probably would have, very positive effects. We're told about the overall moral situation of the people of the land. They're throwing their children into the fire. They're worshiping demons, and they're committing bestiality and a variety of other things. From a purely utilitarian standpoint, do we want that culture to pervade? One that's evil to the core? Or do we want one that has uh, protection for women and children, for workers? One which has just laws and court systems? One where they don't worship demons or throw children into the fire? So in purely a utilitarian perspective, I don't see how you can launch that much of an attack against this. It seems like it would have a strong utilitarian justification. But that's not all. Thinkers in the atheistic tradition, like Michel Foucault, point out when he's describing the history of punishment in France that deaths back then had to be worse than regular deaths. And if they weren't, then why would word spread that there was an execution? We have people getting farm accidents and gangrenous wounds, and then they're dying in surgery as without any painkiller, they're arms or legs are being chopped off. Now that's something, but just a lethal injection, if that existed, or a hanging, well, that's not much worse than what happened to Fred on accident. So at this time in history, in order to make some type of statement, a death had to be something worth talking about, something wild and out of the ordinary. And he makes the further point that for word to travel, it had to be worth traveling. So if it was just somebody murdered somebody and they were put to death in a very normal way, well then the message that you shouldn't murder people and the state will retaliate does not get distributed. So Foucault's point is that there was a time when tying people to horses and riding in multiple directions to tear them in parts had a good utilitarian justification. It announced the message far and wide that there are certain behaviors which you should not engage in because your end will be worse than what your end would have been otherwise. And he points out that as the newspapers came out, as publishing became more popular, as travel was a little bit easier, well then the state can go to more and more humane punishments. But look at that, that we can have these type of wild punishments to keep the common good and that's being vindicated by a certain atheist thinker. Well, isn't that what just happened in the Deuteronomy and the what is it, numbers section that we're going to be reading? Where, in short, God pronounces judgment for a bunch of people to be killed. Well, it has to be a lot of them all slaughtered, their houses burned to the ground, in order for it to meet those earlier qualifications. So, again, launching it from an atheistic worldview, I don't see how it actually seems bad from your point of view. But maybe you don't want to take that utilitarian justification. Maybe you don't want to go with Foucault that there are certain reasons for these very big punishments that actually make sense in this here fallen world. Maybe you want to acknowledge some type of um, 
some type of real standard that has somehow been violated, a real moral standard. Well, that's going to get a little dicey for you, because in order to launch the attack that the Christian God, or at least what's being described as the Christian God's action, was violating a moral law, and therefore these people who uh, committed the, the act of killing all these people are morally uh, condemned, well, that requires some type of moral realism, but that's not very friendly to atheism. Good luck making that jive with a naturalistic perspective, which is ultimately rooted in the principle of, uh, in the principle of indifference. That, I mean, you can try to make that work, but at very least, that's, you're kind of putting yourself in some pretty uneven footing. We'll also need things like a contingent universe in which all these contingent events can happen. And that leads you down via the third way of Aquinas to actually affirming God instead of denying him. We have to have conscious beings with freedom of will to actually do these things and become morally culpable, as it's said that these people supposedly were in this terrible moral um, moral event. So wait a minute, if it requires consciousness, now you have to confront the problems which are associated with consciousness. And if it requires freedom of will, well, that's also going to cause another can of worms to be opened from you. So if you want to launch this from an atheistic perspective, in our first scenario, it doesn't actually work unless you are borrowing a bunch of uh, moral realism, which is alien to your own worldview. And then there's all the other problems which I just brought up too. So in general, if I was the atheist across the table, I would not look at these passages, look at the times where God asks the Israelites to wipe people out. I would not launch my attack from atheism because it actually seems to make more problems for me than it does for them. Instead, I think the better way for them to launch the attack is as an internal critique, saying that if I step into your worldview, things don't make sense. Right things would make sense, and this clearly can't be a right thing then. They might say something like, your claim is that your God is all good and righteous. You say that your scriptures accurately record the words of God. Genocide is not compatible with goodness or righteousness. But genocide is recorded as a commandment from God in your supposedly inherent scriptures. And thus we have a contradiction, a claim that God is good, and yet a clear record of this same God's evil act of genocide. So that's the claim, that there's a contradiction inside of our worldview. It's an internal critique. So all that has to be done to answer an internal critique is to offer something which can harmonize these things. And here's just an example of how that might work. It's a ridiculous one. Let's say we as Christians, assuming you're a Christian listening, if you're not, great, glad you're listening still. Um, let's say we were all in a room and we were going to criticize uh, Islam. And we open up the Quran and we find in verse 1, let's say it says, uh, Muhammad hated cheese. Then we flip over towards the end of the Quran and we find that Muhammad loves cheese. We could say, well, this is a clear contradiction. You can't bring these two things into harmony because they're diametrically opposed. He loves it and then he hates it. And you can't love and hate the same thing in the same way. So this is a contradiction. We're launching an internal critique. Now, all they would have to do is to answer this type of internal critique is to find a verse, say, in the middle of the Quran that read, and then Allah blessed all of the cheese in all of the world, and it was good. 
Well, now they've harmonized these two verses. Well, the earlier one was the unblessed cheese, and the later one was the blessed cheese. Now, here's the important point from this example. We don't have to think that that's like in like a real possibility that Allah had a cheese blessing event. But what we do have to admit at this point is that that would harmonize our apparent contradiction. So we could launch a different attack, like, I don't think cheese, historically speaking, started out cursed and became blessed. And that's fine. Go ahead, launch that attack. But they have harmonized these two verses. They have harmonized those two uh, concepts inside of their worldview. Whether we like the way they did it or not, if it is truly in their tradition and they show that it comes to harmony, they have neutralized the internal critique. So how do we harmonize these things? Well, kind of like this. God had good reason to let this event come about. Also, we ought not expect to know all of God's reasons to do this. Now, is that already part of our tradition? Well, yeah, it's kind of taught explicitly in the book of Job. When Job is experiencing all these terrible events that he can't understand and don't make sense, he finally gets to speak with God towards the end of the book. And God says, So Job, I was stretching out the heavens and you were, oh, you weren't there. Okay, okay, okay. But, but Job, I, I know you have your problems with the way I set up the world and how events come to pass, but, but okay, J just go back with me to when you and I were there and we were telling the sea where to begin and, oh, no, you weren't there, Job, because you're a puff of smoke. His point here is that he has care over the entire universe from beginning to end, that he's the architect of all of this, and that Job ought not expect to even grasp the reasons which God would have to allow these events to come about. That's something that we already have baked deeply into our tradition, that God has God-sized reasons for the things which he allows to happen, the events which he wants to come along through history. So if God had a good reason to have the Israelites wipe out these people, then that harmonizes it. And we ought not expect to know all of God's reasons. There you go. We could stop here. So that does actually answer the internal critique. God had a good reason. Well, how come you don't know it? Because we wouldn't expect to know it. Because he's God. He's master over the entire universe. And I'm a tiny puff of smoke. So there. So it's neutralized. Now, at this point, the burden is on the atheist to show how in all of reality there could not, even in principle, be found a single good reason why God would have these people killed. Not one good explanation. And honestly, good luck with doing that. That sounds pretty difficult. Um, I'll point out one more thing here. It said a one man's modus ponens is another man's modus tollens, meaning there are certain types of arguments which can be run in two different ways. For instance, one could run an argument that says something like, an all-good God would never bring about unnecessary evil. There is unnecessary evil. Therefore, there is no all-good God, right? That's fair. However, if we could supply logical demonstrations, like, say, the five ways of Thomas Aquinas, that demonstrate God does, in fact, exist and is all-good, a one-stop shop would be the fourth way, guys. That shows us all goodness. Then we can add in the idea that God would not create unnecessary evil. 
And then we would conclude, not that God doesn't exist, we've already affirmed God exists. Instead, this argument kind of backfires. It goes in the opposite direction by virtue of the strength of the logical demonstration and proves instead that there are no unnecessary evils. So, with this in mind, we could just run this in the reverse direction and show that because we have good reason for God, we have good reason for his goodness, we witness evils which are in the world, then that logically follows, then that just plain old is compatible with his existence and his goodness. And therefore, we arrive at the conclusion that he has good reason to be a good God and to allow exactly these things. But let's, let's play this game a little bit differently. Let's go back to a few reasons that could justify God's command to kill these people. I said that we don't really have to offer it because we shouldn't expect to know, but for the sake of argument, I'm going to offer a few very compelling reasons that God might have asked the Israelites to go and wipe out these groups of people. Here's one. What if he was saving those people from something worse? Israel was a really, really kind nation compared to its neighbors. What if later that week, they would have been captured by a rival nation? Their wives and daughters would have become sex slaves. Their young children would be burned to death in child sacrifices. And the men would be tortured to instill fear of rebellion or forced into brutal brutal slavery until the day they died. That is not far-fetched. And wouldn't that be an adequate reason for God to have them attacked instead by the Israelites? So there you go. I can offer a possible reason. It's entirely possible. Um, maybe you could say that there could have been another way that God could have protected this, them from this fate. Or, or maybe, I don't know, you could, you, he could have used something other than the Israelites. Well, yeah, maybe, whatever. But now we're levels deep in speculation. And again, it's on the atheist to show that there could not be an adequate reason for God's action. I just gave a very possible adequate reason for God to make this action. This discussion is not about further hypotheticals built upon hypotheticals. I'll add that it could be that instead of being captured by their neighbors, that it was actually worse for them to continue in their ridiculous, depraved wickedness. These are people who will learn we're worshiping demons, we're sacrificing babies in fire, we're committing bestiality and all manner of other sins. So it very well could be that the level of suffering and sin that was present in their own society was actually worse than death. That could be. Maybe God saved them from that. And the next one is the baby Hitler hypothesis. How do we know that God was not preventing massive future evils by removing these people from existing from then on? That That would do it, right? So if he was preventing further evils by having them removed then, well, that would be a good reason, would it not? All right. So, so far, we've been arguing with one hand behind our back. We've been justifying God as if he was a moral actor like us, as if he's just another character in the story, no different than us. And crucially, as if there's no afterlife. We've only been talking about justifications here in this life. But this is a response to an internal critique. So we get to use our pre-existing toolkit of explanations. And we affirm an afterlife that ensures perfect justice administered by a perfect, all-knowing judge at death. 
Therefore, even if we assumed that these people did in fact receive more of a punishment than they deserved, that's possible, but let's say it did, then our theology already teaches perfect justice would happen after death at the hand of our all-good and all-powerful God. So at this point, it's like, okay, well, how could there be an injustice done if we have the afterlife in the hands of an all-powerful, all-just God on the table? I don't see how we can continue with the critique that what happened was indeed unjust in light of the fact that it's not the full story. And further, let's point out that God's role in governments means that he can and indeed should take actions that we ought not. And this is not an alien principle. Your government has a role in, you know, governing. It has a goal to bring about the common good, to preserve the common good. So if a serial killer is caught murdering people, the state has the right, and in some cases the responsibility, to execute the person, or at very least, to throw this guy in a cage for the rest of his life. If you, however, launched your own investigation, tried potential serial killers in your own court, and killed people you found guilty, or locked them in cages in your backyard, this would be wildly illegal and absolutely wrong. Why? Well, you don't have a role in governance such that you can do such things. What you did would be murder or kidnapping. What the state did was to protect the common good. So it's from this principle that I suggest that those in the highest levels of governance over the greatest and most manifold things would have rights and responsibilities that would be immoral to execute by those at a lower level. God, of course, is at the highest level of governance, and that's exactly what he points out to Job when he's having the conversation about why bad things happen. So thus, we ought to expect that he has, quote, rights and responsibilities. I put that in quotes because we're speaking of God, so this is more analogical. But nevertheless, these um, rights and responsibilities that God would have as a governor over all of reality, well, those rights don't exist amongst mankind. So to say God commits genocide is as false as saying the state commits murder in the death penalty or the state commits kidnapping when it makes an arrest of a criminal. It's just completely not true. It's not paying attention to the role of governance. So no, God doesn't commit genocide. No, arrest is not kidnapping and the death penalty would not be murder. Though death penalty we can take off the table. Some people disagree with that. So if the atheist would like to somehow insist that God's rights and responsibility are identical to a person or to the state's rights and responsibilities, if that were true, it would be a valid critique. But when we speak of God, we are by definition not speaking of another creature amongst many. So to make the critique go through, the atheist would be lowering the conception of God to a being that we don't even affirm as God. So thus, it fails to actually be an internal critique at all. If the atheist is actually attacking the God of classical theism, then they are affirming that what we mean by God is the one who is at this level of governance, and that implies rights and responsibilities that cannot be exercised by those at lower levels. So maybe the interlocutor argues that even God's infinitely higher level of government Governance does not allow him to command for some of his creatures to be killed, irrespective of the goods that this could bring about, or the perfect rendering of justice later in the afterlife. But why would we think this? This claim sounds to me completely ad hoc. Are you arguing from the natural law? 
Oh, don't seem to be. Are you arguing from divine revelation? Well, no, certainly don't seem to be. Instead, you seem to be arguing from intuition. It just seems like this God would not be allowed to do this, would not have this role in governance to be able to cut short the lives of men. But what is this intuition based on? Where did your intu intuition come from? Either your intuition came from God, at which point it certainly ought to cohere with his intentions, and if it doesn't, then your intuition is clearly defective. Or it did not derive from God. It came instead from what naturalists would call the principle of indifference, which is grounding reality. But I don't see how if the universe ultimately operates on a principle of indifference, we could trust an intuition that can then make any type of giant moral claims about the possibility of a creator God. It doesn't seem that absent God in a naturalistic paradigm, the intuition has any epistemic ground to stand on to make such grand and far-reaching moral claims. So a classic analogy is the parallel of an author to the characters of a story. And we have a number of very clear parallels here, um, or the author to, to God, right? So we have the author creates this world and God created our world. And God lends the characters us, existence, creates our natures, kind of like an author does for their story. And just like an author has the prerogative to give characters a long life or a short life, well, so does God. So in this way, God would not be morally culpable for the bad actions of bad characters or for the calamities or suffering in the story any more than an author would. Now, if the atheist claims that there is moral culpability for a creator, um, because they, they exist at this higher realm of existence and th that somehow still binds them to the morality internal to that created universe, well, then it seems that that would also imply that we could run this with respect to authors and movie makers and poets, that these two would be culpable for genocide or murder or other evil acts. But by the fact that we don't actually try these people as murderers, we are affirming that there is a difference based on the universal governance of creatures when these creatures are wholly derivative of the power of the creator, um, at which point the creator is not subject to the internal standards of his created universe, or if he is, only in a, a thin analogical sense. So we can't just take what's prohibited for us and apply that to God any more than a character in a story could apply that to an author. That would not be a good parallel. Now, one could say, yes, 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 but the characters in the book are not real. And that's why the author can kill them off. And sure, but this is, of course, an analogy, which I mentioned approximately two minutes of speech ago. The point is to illustrate that on a small scale, a, a principle on a large scale. Um, so I first began by illustrating this with respect to human governance and with respect to human governance, the, the actions of an individual citizen versus a government, a government. And now this analogy shows the role of governance, which relates to a higher level of being to a lower level of being. So this is the second, which illustrates a similar, um, a similar difference with regard to the morality that can be exercised by someone at one level of governance or another. All right, so I think at this point we got to make the economic point that uh, we have to ask the question, compared to what? 
This is, of course, a podcast which deals much with economics, and that is a core economic question. Compared to what? So our claim is that God ought to have the power to set the lengths of days of a creature's life and use the means of his choosing to set its end, to bring about his death. And the atheist's claim is that this somehow should not be the case, or at least should not always be the case. But what would that mean if God didn't have the prerogative to choose how long his creatures lived and how they died, which is the core of the question when we're talking about God telling the Israelites to go and cut short the lives of some of his creatures. If God didn't have this prerogative, what would that look like? What further mechanism would would possibly cut short the, the lives of these people? Because in classical theism, ultimately all lines of causality are only getting their causal power from God. So that's actually a philosophical problem if it doesn't eventually lead to God. Um, but let's just say it was some random effect that would cut short the lives of created creatures so that God would not be the one cutting them short or deciding the means of their death. Would that somehow be better? Is it somehow better for it to be just random chance than in the hands of an all-good God subject to divine providence? No, that seems much worse. So, so far, compared to what is not doing very well, we should certainly prefer that God indeed is the one who's setting the lengths of days. Another option is maybe the creatures just would not die. I mean, that could be, but I mean, practically speaking, how would that work? We'd just be shoulder to shoulder with the dinosaurs right now. What would happen when two of his creatures draw swords and one cuts off the head of the other? Would he just not be dead and be just forever without a head? That wouldn't make sense. Um, should creatures maybe determine their own length of days and means of death? Everybody choosing, of course, the longest possible life and death by chocolate. That seems also to lead to a wild chaos and disorder. And also, how would murderers in that world be punished? What would happen when we have wars with evil nations? Um, in short, be careful what you wish for. It seems to me that the only good option is to affirm what theists indeed affirm, that God does have the right and indeed responsibility for the sake of the common good to choose the length of days for his creatures and choose in what way the days will end. Alternatives, to me, seem to lead to chaos, and in fact, ironically, a lot more suffering. Suffering which is just random. Suffering which is maybe chosen by us and leading to disastrous consequences. Suffering which I do think is completely unwarranted. Not the type of suffering which is allowed by an all-good God. Another point, God ending life is categorically different from the way that we end life. It's not, it doesn't really even warrant the same word. Um, so just as analogy, does the state supply you with existence? Does it give you a nature? No, of course it doesn't. Do other people do this for you? Is somebody out there upholding you in being? You know, being, being the thing necessary um, so that you can enjoy any good thing at all, without which you could enjoy exactly zero goodness. Is somebody doing that for you? Is the state doing that for you? No, no, of course not. Inside of the classical theist tradition, we believe that God is upholding us in being. Which means when he decides to cut short our life, that is a very different act. When we kill someone, we take away their life. It's kind of like if we stole $1,000 from their bank account. They had 1000 and then we took it from them. But when God takes a life, 
it's very, very different. He is doing a different species of action. He is stopping giving you life. It would be like if I was transferring you $1,000 every month just because, just because I liked you. And then one day I stopped transferring the $1,000. Would that be theft? Would that be the same as somebody robbing your bank account? Obviously not. It's not the same species of action. So if we affirm the God that we're actually talking about within Christianity, the one who is upholding us in being, well, then the species of action that he is taking, even if he's using a secondary means like the Israelites, is categorically different than the ones which would be taking place if somebody on their own initiative decided to go and try to wipe out a nation. These things don't even deserve the same word. It's as ridiculous to say that God commands genocide as it would be to say that when a government uh, finds you, it's theft. Or when um, they arrest somebody, it's, uh, it's kidnapping. Or w any of those other examples that we touched on a little bit earlier. So, all right, um, I think we should probably get into the text pretty soon. I will make one more point here, and that is that our gift of life is entirely unmerited. On what possible grounds, if you were speaking to God, could you say that I deserve ongoing life? By definition, we cannot merit the life that we are given, the being that we are given. So this is a complete unmerited gift that we in no way can deserve, and to dictate to God on what terms it ought to be given and at what point it must end is entirely arrogant and fully ridiculous. This is something which we have no right to to begin with. Our possession of it is entirely gratuitous. All right. Um, let's see. Let's start with Numbers 31. And this is beginning in verse 31. And you know what? Let's take a brief break here before we dive in. The Lord said to Moses, Take vengeance on the Midianites for the Israelites. After that, you will be gathered to your people. So, framing our first difficult passage in Numbers 31 is the fact that what's going on afterwards is vengeance, meaning that they are repaying wrongdoing in the order of justice. This punishment is not arbitrary or stemming from private animosity. This is nothing like a genocide because of racism or seething ethnic tensions. This is specifically said to be vengeance. It is a redress of wrong that has been done. So that is the context and is clearly laid out. Again, you might not like that conclusion. You might think that's historically false. But if this is a critique of the coherence of the Christian message, well, then we have offered something that does make sense of it, that it is vengeance. And that's said in the text itself. And vengeance is an adequate reason, right? If there's indeed a wrong done, then a just God, which we affirm from the onset, would bring about justice. All right, so that's our context. So Moses said to the people, Arm some of your men and go to war against the Midianites so that they may carry out the Lord's vengeance on them. Send into battle a thousand men from each of the tribes of Israel. So 12,000 men armed for battle, a thousand from each tribe were supplied from the clans of Israel. Moses sent them into battle, a thousand from each tribe, along with Phileas, son of Eleazar, the priest, who took with him 
articles from the sanctuary and the trumpets for signaling. They fought against Midian as the Lord commanded Moses and killed every man. So they killed a group of people that came out and battled them. And so these were combatants. So we're going to be breaking down the groups as we go. Is it reasonable to kill combatants? Yes, of course, right? Um, Especially if they're evil and they're defending a deeply evil way of life. If we go to war with the Nazis, right? We did go to war with Nazis since World War II, guys. In that situation, would we object that the Allies killed them? Well, of course not. So, so far, so good. Among their victims were Evi, Rechem, Zer, Her, Reba, the five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. The Israelites captured the Midianite women and children and took all the Midianite <coughs> herds, flocks, and goods as plunder. Hang on, need a sip of water. They took, they burned all the towns where the Midianites had settled, as well as their camps. They took all the plunder and spoils, including the people and animals, and brought the captives, spoils, and plunder to Moses and Eleazar the priest, and Israelite assembly at their camp on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. So we got to ask the question that we asked earlier: compared to what? Compared to what? Compared to what? At first, we hear, oh, they, they plundered their flocks and herds and, and goods. Why, they, they took all these people out. All right, a bunch of their fighting men were just defeated and killed in the earlier section. Now we have some people who are left behind, and we have a bunch of goods. What's your idea? Should we just leave them at this point? You know what's going to happen to them at this point? <laughs> Nobody to defend them because they were defeated. And it's women, it's children, it's flocks and herds, it's plunder. They're going to get attacked by a rival nation, and their fate is going to be terrible. So what happens? Well, much of this is then brought into Israel. Moses, Eleazar the priest, and all the leaders of the community went to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds who returned from battle. Have you allowed all the women to live, he asked. Now, some people read that and think, oh, I get it. Moses won all the women dead. <laughs> no, not so simple as we're going to see in the next line and later on in the passage. And picking up in verse 16, they were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident so that a plague struck the Lord's people. So some of these women were involved in this incident as recorded in Numbers 25, 1 through 3. Uh, which reads, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israelite yoked himself to Baal at Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Okay, what, that's the Peor incident? Doesn't seem that bad, just a little worship of other gods. All right, so what does that worship entail? Is it just uh a few worship and praise songs and uh, hitting the smoke machine? No, it's not. Here's what a Deuteronomy 12.31 says when it's specifically speaking about the people who were deposed of their land. Which, by the way, we're reading about how they were deposed from the land. So it's these people. Quote, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. 
They even burned their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. And yes, it is commonly acknowledged, as far as I can tell, that Baal worship includes child sacrifice. So, circling back, um, Moses asks, have you allowed all the women, all the women to live? Why did he want, not want all the women to live? Not because he wanted none of the women to live, but because there were those who were involved in the Peor incident, where they worshipped other gods. And what they do there? They burned children. Um, what would happen today in our society if we found a bunch of women who were burning children in fire? Um, that's the death penalty. If not, it's something, it's about as egregious of a crime and it's the highest penalty that your particular state could possibly offer if you're literally burning children in fire. So that's what they were bringing these people into and that's why these women were killed. They would be killed under our law. Alrighty. Now, kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man, but save for yourself every girl who has never slept with a man. A few things. Um, we get to look at the word boys specifically. For those of you who know Hebrew, let me know how this is being used. But boys is not just toddlers. In Leviticus 27.5, the different ages of people are divided up. And one group is the 5 through 20 crowd. So when scripture says boys, it's commonly talking about this age range. It's similar to the commentary you'll find about Elijah calling down the bears because of these boys who are taunting him. But boys goes up to 20, as we can see from Leviticus. And that's certainly a fighting age. Our military has a minimum age of 17. 17-year-olds 17 in our culture are military-age men. And again, we do affirm that this is maximum penalty kind of stuff, where, yes, the maximum penalty for these boys could be death. Why? Because they certainly could be fighting age. What about these women who slept with a man? Kill every man who, or every woman who slept with a man. What's going on there? Well, what it certainly could mean is the context directly prior, that women were sleeping with Israelites, were engaging into this uh, type of worship, which is uh, centered around this fertility cult. They're worshiping Baal and ritual prostitution, and that is involved in the sin of throwing children into fire and a variety of other things. So it's very likely that it's targeting this, as that is the context of the passage. Um, and then, save for yourself every girl who has never sleep, slept with a man. Again, we have to ask the question of, compared to what? Hmm? What, leave them be? Leave vulnerable girls who their dad or, or brothers or could have been killed in that first incident where they came out to fight? Just leave them in the land? This is a near subsistence agricultural climate. That means they just die. Instead, you include them into the most peaceful, sane, well-regulated uh, or country hitherto in history that protects women more than any other group recorded in history. You include them into that instead of letting them be prey to the terrible, evil, demon-worshipping groups um, directly around them or be just snapped up by who knows who for who knows what. No, obviously, you would include them into Israel. All right. But let's, let's assume, yes, let's assume worst case scenario, put some of those things to the side that we're killing all sorts of people, even boys, even, even women, right? Well, um, in that case, we, we lean on what we had earlier. Can we make this decision? No. Can a government make this decision? No. Can God, 
who is simply ending the length of days for a creature that he is generously giving being decide when to cut one's life short? Well, yes, obviously he can. And note, none of this is just because they privately decided to go and kill these people. None of it. It wasn't because the government, it wasn't because Moses was like, hey, I got an idea. No. Those things would be rightly condemned. The only way that this is okay is if this is, from God's perspective, the right thing to do. Because he knows that it will bring about a greater good. Something that we could not even in principle know. Which is why we, not even in principle, would be justified in killing all these women and children and, and, and men. No, of course not. Nobody is claiming that genocide's okay. Nobody is claiming that large-scale murder is okay. What we are saying is that the creator of all things has a special role in governance. And of course, he could delegate that to his creatures. He's God. He can do what he likes. Now, are we saying that anybody who thinks they heard the voice of God can go out and kill people? No, obviously not. And that's not what happened here. It's not like one prophet came out from the desert and was like, guys, got an idea. You know how you hate those guys over there, the Midianites? Let's get them. That's not what happened. This is a people who just saw a series of supernatural plagues save them from Pharaoh. They watched the Red Sea get parted. They had supernatural sustenance in the desert. They met God on Mount Sinai. And then they saw him in the pillar of, of fire, the pillar of smoke. Um, they've had a variety of pretty miraculous um, events to totally vindicate that God is with them, God is speaking to them, God is present with them, God has chosen them, and God has indeed given them this land. That is not something that happens later on. This is a very unique point in history where it is about as clear as it possibly could be that God is on their side and speaking to them extraordinarily clearly, which is why they're not taking this up on their own initiative. They are doing this only in connection with God's judgment. Let's go into good old Deuteronomy. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offering of peace. If they accept and open your gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, they siege that city. When the Lord your God delivers into your hands, put it to the sword, all the men in it. As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you may take these as plunder for yourselves. You may use the plunder the Lord gives you from your enemies. This is how you to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you and do not belong to the nations nearby. All right, so we have the offer of surrender. I think we all like that. Um, slavery, that's a separate issue, and I've dealt with that in different podcasts. For instance, the Leviticus series. Taking the women and children as plunder, we explained earlier, that's kind of a no-brainer. We got to ask the question, compared to what? Just leave a bunch of defenseless women and children to be prey to the super evil nations around there? No way. Of course, include them into Israel if it's not going to cause some truly awful uh, uh, result. All right, verse 16. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to, to follow all the detestable things that they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord. And there we have it, a justification for this large-scale driving out or destroying of the nations, because they will teach you to worship their other gods. 
So there's two possibilities. Either they are teaching in the present tense, and that's why they merit destruction, or God, from his view, knows that they will do this, and he's protecting you from that future sin, and, may I add, protecting their souls from being marked by that future sin. Inside of Christianity, we think that the soul, having a soul which is damaged, is worse than having a body that's damaged. So it is actually a mercy that they are prevented from this sin from the beginning, rather than they mar their souls and cast themselves deeper into hell. Again, this is a critique of the coherence of Christianity. So this does cohere with the idea that God would prefer the good of the Israelite souls and the Canaanites, Parasites, Hibbisites, and Jibbisites and Hittites and Amorites souls um, by removing their opportunity to sin either in the present or going into the future using him's omniscient sight of the future. All right. Um, we got to jump down to a passage which is connected to this because of some of the rules of warfare. When you go to make war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captive, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, tram her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned for her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go whenever she wishes." You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. Few things. What's the point of this whole, um, she has to shave her head, uh, clip her nails, she has to put on different clothes. It's so that she is not attractive to you or the other soldiers. This is a law to protect her from sexual abuse. And it makes it very clear if you're not actually abiding by the law. It's really hard to police if you just said, hey, you know soldiers, when you're running around and you see some beautiful women you know, don't, don't do anything you shouldn't be doing, right? Soldiers, we're all on the same page. That's pretty hard to police, and you don't really know if they're actually abiding by that. But if you have a bunch of women who are not shaved head, and they, are, and they don't have clothes, which I, th I think at some place it's like sackcloth or something that's going to be certainly not stylish, if they don't have these outward marks, then it's very clear that the men are not abiding by this. And if they have done all these things, then they have made themselves much less attractive to these people. Um, so that's the first point, and that is that's pretty like milk toast commentary from the rabbis. From what I can tell, that is clearly the intention of the law. Also, she's given a time of mourning, which I think is good. And let's add in the few things that ought to be obvious. Some people read this and they just have this anti-biblical bias that thinks, you force her to be your wife? No, all marriage is consensual in Israel. You have to both sign the marriage contract. So that still is in place. What, you could just, you know, say you're my wife and then, you know, have relations with her? No, it's very clear in the law that any type of rape is the death penalty by stoning. So, don't get any ideas that they are forced into conjugal union, forced into marriage. Um, none, of that, none of that happens. And then read this very interesting language that if you're not pleased with her, then let her go whenever she wishes. Which means if she's not having it and she just thinks this whole arrangement is terrible, um, you're pretty quickly going to be displeased with her. 
Again, you can't have relations with her. You do have a duty to support her during this time. She has to somehow agree to the terms that you are offering her, and she is not going with it. That would make you unpleased with her. She's not willing to marry you. That makes you unpleased, at which point she can go whenever she wishes. And by the way, you cannot in this time sell her, right? She becomes your responsibility to care for. You cannot treat her for a slave, which means you cannot extract labor from her. So you are fully supporting her. You are expected nothing to take out of her as a slave or as a wife or as anything else, and you can't profit by her sale. Pretty clear, huh? <laughs> and then all of this because you have dishonored her, meaning you you took her away from her land. She had to shave her head and all this stuff. So it's actually protecting the dignity of her. It's recognizing the dishonoring nature of this whole arrangement. But guess what? It's certainly better than the alternative because seriously, what's your plan? She doesn't have a husband. He could have been killed in war. Um, who's going to support her? We are near subsistence. You want her just to die? You want her to be prey to the other nations? No. This is an example where they're offered to become a wife, where they are being supported even before they are a wife and nothing's being expected out of them. They can leave this arrangement and they're given time to mourn where they will not be bothered by the people who are then caring for them. This is a good idea. I can't come up with too many better ways to treat the the women that would be brought into Israel. And then they get to be part of Israel, which let's not forget, Israel compared to all of the other nations is really, really, really awesome. So let's summarize a little bit of what we talked about here. Is God commanding genocide? No, absolutely not. We argued that those responsible for governance at a higher level have roles and responsibilities that are immoral to carry out at a lower level. God commands genocide no more than governments kidnap when they arrest, murder when they execute, or steal when they levy fines. And furthermore, genocide is aimed at destroying a nation, a people, or an ethnic group. This is, instead, it's vengeance for a specific group of heinous acts. That is the justification for this act. It's not private animus against a, a nation or, a, or an ethnic group. That would be wrong. And God created all the peoples of the earth. He has no animus against them. He wants all to be saved, and that's pretty darn clear in Scripture. Instead, vengeance for specific heinous acts. That's the context. In these acts, we know some, one of which is child sacrifice, as we read in Deuteronomy. The worship of demons, as we can read in a variety of places, Leviticus and all the way up to Paul. Bestiality, as we read in, oh, let's see, I think Deuteronomy, and then also the prophets. And there's a whole bunch of other terrible evil sins that they did. And by the way, these guys had 400 years to repent. That's the time that the fullness of their wickedness came about. The Israelites were not in the promised land while they were in Egypt. So the full flowering of their wickedness finally came about, and this is when they had to pay the piper. All right, and finally, God's action as a creator is not the same as ours. His action of stopping the gift of our totally unmerited gift of life and existence is not the same as when we kill. These are as different as stealing money from a bank account and a very kind, generous, rich man no longer giving you unmerited money. They're not the same species of action, so we shouldn't be treating them as such. Is God anti-woman? No, I think that these are some of the most pro-woman laws I know of, certainly in this very, very, very early time in history. And I don't 
think that there's much room to make these terribly better, um, to ensure that these women are not abused, to make sure that they consent to any type of arrangement with a man, to give them the opportunity to leave these arrangements, to, I mean, we went through the list of stuff. I think you get the point. Um, no, God's not anti-woman. Um, this is extraordinarily pro-woman. And this is, and we, we got to remind our listeners that the atheist must show that God could not have a good reason to have these people killed. And I gave a couple possibilities. Um, one is the reason that they would infect the Israelites with the sin. Again, things like child sacrifice, bestiality, and demon worship. And on a purely natural level, if you are an atheist, you ought to be glad that Israel maintained some semblance of purity from the nations because it birthed Christianity. And your intuitions of right and wrong, whether you like it or not, whether you admit it or not, were indeed shaped by the Christian tradition. The concept that you ought to love your enemies, that might does not make right, that babies ought not be burned alive, are all directly rooted in Christian culture. And Christian culture would be impossible if there wasn't a persistent Jewish nation until the time of Christ. So the fact that you turn your Christian-shaped moral intuitions back on the tradition that shaped you is just ignorant and woefully ungrateful. The fact that we live in a place which takes Christian morality for granted is only possible because Israel continued to exist. And if it was infected by all these things, then billions of people would not live under laws which respect human dignity. The idea of human dignity, why, where is that before Israel? Nowhere. So here's a couple other things. It also could have prevented much greater long-lasting um, evils from persisting. Right? I mean, just no good influence in that land. So that's another reason why God could have been justified. So one, it would have affected Israel, thus Christianity, thus the world. And the other way, instead of not bringing about good, it would have brought about more evil. So that's a second justification. Um, oh, we can add that uh, it very well could be that Israelites attacking these people and destroying them saved them from a worse fate. We talked about that one earlier. One is the terror from another nation, and the other is the terror of living in their own ridiculously wicked society. And then, since we are countering a critique of coherence of Christianity, we get to draw from our own theology, where we believe people have souls, and these souls are punished in hell for wickedness. God cutting these people's lives short may be cutting their opportunity for evil short, too. And this could be a mercy towards them, taking away the opportunity to merit a much deeper place in hell. Now, do we get to make the decision to do that for people? No, obviously not. We're not at that level of governance. Therefore, it would be entirely wrong and inappropriate. But God could. An omniscient, all-good God? Of course he could. So, in short, the atheist must show that there is no possible good reason that good God could have these people killed. And I have just offered a variety of good reasons that God could have. And we affirm that we have deductive arguments to show that God exists. And we agree that we would not have a world that has evil without a good reason for that evil. And therefore, we can conclude from these points that the apparent evil that we have, and it is evil, um, isn't, isn't just gratuitous. It would have a good reason. Why? Because we have a good God. So the argument that God doesn't exist because there's unnecessary evil, I see that as entirely backfiring 
in the presence of strong deductive arguments that show that a good God does exist, which point it runs the opposite way and just proves that unnecessary evil does not exist. One man's modus ponens, another man's modus tollens. Now, as an external critique, one being launched from the atheistic launchpad, this line of reasoning proves more harmful to atheism than theism, as it requires affirming things very unfriendly to naturalism in order to make the attack on theism. It undercuts itself. Further, it forgets the argument of some of its own thinkers, who would not have a hard time justifying this so-called genocide on utilitarian grounds. It's only by borrowing Christian premises and launching an internal critique can one get anywhere? And the problem with that is that we have had numerous ways to harmonize the so-called contradiction between the call for killing and the goodness of God, like the presence of a good reason, the ridiculousness of any type of alternatives where God doesn't have a role in cutting short the length of days for his creation, the role of governance and the dissimilarity of our mode of action versus God's. All of these are perfectly adequate to meet this internal critique. And Christians are free to explore those other defenses I mentioned at the top of the episode, that a lot of this could just be a bunch of trash talking, that this was an allowance for only this much violence. In other words, there's a maximum penalty. Um, but I don't think we have to do this. I think that we could choose to hit this one right on the head. And although it seems very difficult to handle at first, I think that ultimately I see this as a failed objection against the existence of God or the coherence of Christianity. Well, I hope that some of you happened to be um, dealing with conversations with atheists who brought up, I don't know, exactly these passages and that somehow this could be helpful to you. I appreciate you guys listening. As always, share it with a friend. Uh, throw a review in there, preferably five stairs, if you feel so kind. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.